Now we'll turn again to the second letter of Paul to Timothy and the closing verses of chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 25 and 26. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Now, many Christians' most unforgettable memories are of the opposition that they've occasionally encountered on the way. Dan Walker's uh, parents uh, called me this past week, and uh, in a long chat he told me that in the last few days Dan has been feeling pretty shattered. All the attacks on his Christian faith during the past two weeks that he's had to endure have uh, finally got through to him. And Dan's wife... She's um, taken it badly, too. She's had a torrid time. They'll never forget the obloquy and mockery that they've experienced from journalists, especially from The Guardian, but even from The Telegraph. But the BBC have stuck by Dan. They want him, and in spite of all the calumny, Dan begins his prestigious new job on the morning TV show tomorrow morning. I've never seen it, but uh, if I remember, I'll have a glance at it and pray for him um, in the morning and the the new exposure he has as as a true Christian to a lot of people. The verse before us is about the Christian response to opposition. Paul never forgot what it cost him to follow Christ. He would remember how many times he'd been lashed and beaten with rods, how many times he'd been shipwrecked and all the perils that he'd been in. Um, In all the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New, we see Christian leaders who've been called by God, set apart by God, being opposed and criticized. And threatened. And then in the 2,000 years of the history of the church, its missionaries and reformers, its defenders and evangelists have all faced opposition. When our Lord Jesus was the son of a carpenter, making window frames and gates and doors and tables, he was the favorite son of everybody in Nazareth. We're told that he grew in favor with the people of the village. Women complimented Mary. Oh, I wish my son was like your son, they'd say. And if he'd remained there all his life as the village carpenter, eventually he'd have had a big funeral and left many happy memories. And what a loss that would have been to the world. But a time came when he had to say goodbye to his mother and her husband and to his brothers and sisters and friends that he had in the village and walked away from the carpenter's bench to be baptized by John the Baptist. And after 40 days and 40 nights, 
in the wilderness, he emerged and he began public preaching, confronting his fellow countrymen with their sins, calling on them to repent. He began making these great claims for himself that he was going to judge the world, that all of us are going to appear before him and receive our eternal destiny from his lips, that he and God are one, that he existed before Abraham, that no man comes to the Father except through him. And he immediately met intense opposition. His family opposed him. When he spoke of laying down his life, his disciples opposed him. The Gentile leaders opposed him, Pilate and and Herod, and the Jewish leaders opposed him. His life then consisted of constant opposition day by day. And when he spoke to his disciples, he warned them this was going to characterize all their lives too, if they lived close to him and if they followed him. Blessed are you when men oppose you, he told them. There was no escape from it. They had to take up their cross too and deny themselves and follow him. Jesus was not talking about the inevitable reaction that you get if you, uh, if you shout at people for 20 minutes. They want to shout back at you after that time, don't they? Or the consequences of foolish and, and personal attacks on people. But he's talking about opposition when you tell people that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the creator of the universe. That he is the Savior. And through him, salvation comes if you simply trust in him. There's a heaven to win. There's a hell to avoid. And there must be belief or there will be The judgment of God. When we preach a gospel, we say to people, there's nothing you can do, you know, to earn this gospel. It's all been done by Jesus Christ, by his life, and by the atonement he made as the Lamb of God to take our sin away. And all we can do is entrust ourselves to him, put ourselves in his orbit, in his fellowship, in union with him, be joined to him and ask him to save us. The natural man will, will find that appalling. Polly Toynbee said, I never asked Jesus Christ to die for me. That student who shouted out to John Stott when John was a student and they were in a college together and uh, John explained to him the gospel and how God had sent his son and We deserve eternal death, but Jesus has taken that death for us that we might be forgiven. Horrible, 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 the man said to him. Now the book of Acts describes the opposition that immediately was faced by the apostles. And the letters are full of accounts then of what Paul has gone through, or Peter, or John, and what they must go through too, if they are faithful to the Lord. Now, what is fascinating about the text of Scripture that I read to you this morning is that uh, Paul, from his vast experience of uh, a pilgrimage of opposition, tells Timothy and tells us what our response is going to be when we meet opposition for Jesus' sake. Firstly, remember who you are. You are the slave of God. 
The preceding verse says, And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone. Able to teach. Not resentful. Many of you know what the Greek word for uh, servant or slave is. It's the word doulos. It's the name for the famous ship owned by Operation Mobilization that goes around the world then with uh, literature and medical help, uh, supporting the churches. Doulos is the word for servant or slave. The two words are interchangeable in the New Testament. So here we have a, a new picture of the Christian life. We've looked at this picture of a big house and all sorts of religious people uh, in, this, uh, in this house, this Christendom. The cults are there, the modernists and the evangelicals and the Catholics and uh, the Orthodox. They're all there. They're all in this big house together, different floors, different wings, different rooms, and then they're debating and discussing, and uh, we are there warning and pleading and defending and evangelizing and breaking our hearts in, in, this, uh, in this big house. Well, we're not the owners of the house. We are slaves who are in this big house. Uh, we're not the primates. We're not the heads uh, of this house. All we do, are, we do as, as servants, slaves of Jesus Christ. Slaves don't quarrel with their masters. A slave had no rights. He had nothing of his own. He had no choices of his own. He had no vacations of his own. No hours he could call his own. No property. He could say, this is mine. He belonged to his Lord. And so he didn't quarrel. When his Lord said, now today I want you to till the field, or I want you to, uh, to do the washing, or go down to the well and bring water back. That's exactly our status with our Lord for today and, and all our days. We wake up in the morning and we say, Lord, show me what you want me to do today. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven as the eyes of a maid are on the face of a mistress, and as the eyes of a servant are upon his master. So our eyes are upon the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what, what do you want me to do today? And contentment and fulfillment is found for every Christian in accepting and doing the will of his master. So we are meeting opposition, we are meeting clever arguments, and we are out of our depth. And we are there exactly because God has put us there, in front of these people. And we look to the face of our master. We don't address vagueness, no, we, we address this person. This lovely person we've grown to know with increasing familiarity and dependence through the years of our pilgrimage. And we're saying in our hearts, Lord, help me now. Help me now, Lord. We're saying that as we meet these clever retorts and sophisticated arguments. And we find that in our emptiness and in our impotence, the Lord is listening. And he fills our minds. So uh, women in their 20s were able to answer the leaders of the uh, Inquisition. And teenage boys were, able, were given grace to speak and defend uh, why they didn't want to go to Mass 
where they didn't believe in Mass, but they believed in the Lord's Supper. And even though they knew they were going to be burned at the stake for affirming these truths, they were given grace. And even when they were given a chance to speak at the stake before they lit the faggots and the kindling, they could speak. John Bunyan's pregnant wife eloquently could speak to the old judges on her husband's behalf. God helps us. We, we cry to him. And he helps us when we are in opposition. The Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ is on them. You know what he is called, what Jesus is called by the prophet Isaiah? He is given this very title that is only found here in, in, in the pastoral epistles and is rarely found just like this in the New Testament. The phrase, the servant of the Lord. And you know, there are servant songs, as we call them, in the prophecy of Isaiah. And in one of them, Isaiah 42 and verse 3, we are told about the Lord Jesus. He won't break a bruised reed. He won't quench a smoking flax. If there's a little ant walking across the path in front of him. He won't crush it. He's saying that. He's speaking of God's great tenderness and patience and love for us. So when he came into this world, he came and he started to preach. And early on, he was saying things like this, come to me and, and I'll give you rest. I can do it. I can give it to you. Whatever your problems are, I can give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I am meek and, and lowly of heart. He told them. You'll find rest for your souls. Only the meekest of men would allow a woman to kneel at his feet and weep over them and drench them with her tears and dry them with her hair. And gently and meekly he would allow a woman to do that. When the greatest sermon that's ever been preached in this world was once preached in the open air on a mountainside, Jesus began it by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And at the end of his life, when they were driving nails through his hands and feet and lifting him up on the cross, he prayed to God and he asked God to forgive us, to forgive these people. They didn't know what they were doing. He pleaded their ignorance and that God would forgive them for doing that to him. He's a gentle saviour. He's a meek saviour. So, in our text, in the context of the opposition that every Christian meets, the Holy Spirit says, the Lord's servant must not quarrel Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. So Dan Walker and his wife mustn't quarrel. They must be kind to everyone. They mustn't not be resentful. They must have a good testimony in church this morning in, in Sheffield, in Wycliffe there, and smile at the people there, and everyone saying, are you all right? Are you coping okay? We're only the slaves of the Lord. 
There's no place for pomp or pride or position in our lives. It's an oxymoron, isn't it? A pompous slave. We're the ones responsible for washing the donkey dung off the feet of the visitors who've come to see our master. That's our task. And drying them. Drying between their toes and putting anointing oil on their heads and welcoming them and make them at ease. The greatest of us is the best possible servant. Be kind to everyone, says the Holy Spirit in our text, verse 24. Not resentful. Not resentful. Verse 24. What a servant to have in your house. Derek Swan would worship in a certain church. And he was struck by the pastor, by the fact that he would always address the Lord in a certain way. As some of you do. Uh, I notice some of you always start Heavenly Father. Well, uh, Derek Swan was worshipping in this church, and, and this man always began, kind and loving God. And one day then, Derek was filled with curiosity, and he asked the reason for this. And the man told him that in the previous church, there were tensions, there were outspoken men and women, some quite young, and they argued fiercely, no surrender. And it became impossible for him in the end. It just couldn't remain there. And that that spirit was so different from the grace of a loving God. And the preacher was so conscious of this. So when he came to a new church then, he wanted to bring God before them week by week. The God he knew, the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible who tells us to be kind to everyone, verse 24, is our God. And we are mighty glad this morning he's been kind to us. And then the second thing I want you to see in this passage is that you must gently instruct your opponent. It's not a boxing match. Gentleness comes from the Spirit of God. In one place, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he wanted them to grow up. He wanted them to mature, to grow in grace. And this is how he addressed them. It's a wonderful Example of gentle boldness. 2 Corinthians 10, the opening verse. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in present am lowly among you, but being absent, am bold toward you. Now gentleness requires Humility. You are not a know-it-all. Gentleness is the meek attitude of wanting to help other people instead of showing your superiority over them. Gentleness flows from a, a real love. You love them as you love yourself, don't you? The second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. You love them, these people. So, we are to be gentle 
in our thoughts for them. The worst thing is to lie in bed and fester with resentment about other Christians. We are not plotting in our minds and our words. Gentleness is pervasive in a Christian. And we are to be bold too. And that is the challenge, isn't it? Being bold without sinning. Look at the Lord Jesus. What boldness. Making a whip. Driving the money changers, the crooks, the hucksters out of the temple. But what gentleness he had. What a lot we've got to learn. What progress in grace we need to make. Are you, are you gentle when you meet with one another? When officers meet, are they gentle with one another? You think of this holy combination then of being outspoken, but never at the expense of gentleness. You think always got to be in a youth club. A youth club, kids come in, and uh, they enjoy the games and the fun, and there are rules. There got to be rules. The, the rules make the youth club. Without the rules, there can't be a youth club. And so you, you say, now boys, come on now. Calm down. No, don't do that. You can't do that. And so on. And if they defy, then they, they can't stay. They can't stay. They are banned for a week or two weeks. And all the time you have to be gentle with them. You have to be righteous and approachable. That's the challenge of, of the Christian life. Gentleness is no option for the Christian. It's a command. Um, like one of the Ten Commandments, uh, Philippians 4, 5 says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. <coughs> so Christ is there. Um, he's at hand. He's, he's in the gathering. He's, he's looking at you. He's listening to you. He's listening to the others. He's noting the temperature rising. He has all the power in the universe, and uh, he himself is gentle. He's the great example for us. Um, he doesn't tread on the ant. He, he, he doesn't break a bruised reed. Uh, he never does. Uh, that's why you're here this morning, uh, and you've got to be like him. And when he puts you in a place of leadership in the church, you're not to use it selfishly or, or cruelly. When Jesus was confronted with a woman uh, caught in the act of adultery, he said to her, does no one condemn you? They all left. When he said, well, if you're without sin, you can stone her. And they all left. The oldest first, they all left. Well, go and sin no more, he said. Remember? Go. Go. Neither do I condemn you. Go. Stop sinning. Sin no more. He didn't make a whip and drive her away. He didn't magnify the law by picking up the first stone and hurling it at her. He didn't do that. His grace triumphed over temporary Old Covenant legislation. He magnified grace towards her. And he has magnified his grace in, 
in saving you and keeping you and bringing you and me here today. He says, yes, we, we've sinned, but we mustn't sin any more. We gently instruct those who oppose us because God has been so gentle in the way he's dealt with us. Gentleness in, in a world that magnifies violent encounters. The hit. Uh, rugby now is just uh, not the, the innocuous tackle, but the, the hits, the violence, the concussion. God wants us to live in a gentle way. Gentleness is powerful. Gentleness changes men's lives. How has it been with you? you? You were a Christian. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And so the fruit, singular, the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits, the fruit of the Spirit. Ninefold fruit, all there in us. Not just some. Um, all of us can say, well, I'm a very joyful person. We can say that. Or uh, we can say, I, I've been very faithful. We've got those fruit. But do you have gentleness? Because you must have all the fruit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. All those fruit. If the Holy Spirit is in you, He is fructifying your life. He's producing fruit in your life. Uh, what are your rationalizations for raising your voice? Are you more at home with a whip cleansing the temple than you are on your knees washing feet? Do you exhibit gentleness to others that God exhibits to you every day? Um, are you described as a gentle person? You know, when the church produces a card and uh, all the congregation are asked to uh, send greetings to you for 50 years in, in the congregation? Do they say, we thank God for your gentleness? It's very challenging, isn't it? If gentleness has a, a big place, and it searches the preacher, has the preacher done what Paul tells Timothy to do? To be bold, but gently bold. Bold gentleness. We need to know it. It's not a weak virtue, is it? He doesn't say here, um, this is the way to treat them. Be a wimp. Being gentle is not behaving like a milksop. Gentleness requires self-control and wisdom and thoughtfulness and concern and tact. Here we are in this angry, nasty culture which magnifies then um, a person demanding his rights always. And we've got to be salt We've got to be different in that culture. So, 
I think, um, practically now about growing in gentleness. Be quick to apologize. Say you're sorry that you spoke as you did. Your rants, your emotional outbursts, if, if, if it's in, ho- in the home. Say to your children, Daddy's sorry. He shouldn't have spoken to Mummy. He shouldn't have spoken to you in that way. And you apologize to the children. I know we're fallen human beings. We're trying to keep a lid on powerful emotions. And sometimes we're more successful than others. There are times when we lose our cool. Gentle people are sensitive people. And discerning people. They realize that they've affected other people in a way they didn't intend to affect them. And they've upset them. And they apologize to them for doing that. They'll pray for more self-control. They remind themselves of God's gentleness towards them. Would you want to be on the receiving end of your own gentleness? How would you want a holy God to correct you? Well, you'd want him to be terribly gentle towards you. He can speak and um, cast the devil into a bottomless pit. And here you are, and you know there's a devilish spirit in your heart sometimes. You want him to be gentle to you. Um, When you hear or see someone doing or saying something wrong, do you get a club and bash their heads in? Or do you get a notebook out? Not to give them a hundred lines, I must be more gentle, but with... uh, to write down some ideas about correcting yourself. How to be sweeter, how to be more patient. How to learn from the belligerence of others. How to be more understanding and concerned. How can I help that person? Should I visit that person? Should I give them some flowers? Should I remember their birthday? You get a notebook and you think, yeah, I've got to handle that person in this way. And then we see next the glorious consequences of being gentle. And the glorious consequences are that you'll meet more and more repenting sinners. You see the connection? In the hope, you're gentle to all men, gentle to your opponents, in the hope, verse 25, that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. So you gently discuss the gospel And you present the claims of Christ. And you never stop doing it in the hope of a change. We've got good news. Good news for aberystwyth sinners. Good news for your friends and and your family. That God has loved the world and given his son. And that if you trust in him, you have everlasting life. And God forgives you your sins. And that message is enhanced 
by the gentleness of the way you present it to people. That there's meekness as you instruct them. The meek, the meek alone inherit the earth. What's the end of all our evangelism? Well, it's not merely a decision, but we want we want decisions. We want you all to come to a decision that from now on you're going to be a Christian and you're going to follow Jesus Christ. But we want those decisions to be motivated by repentance. The word repentance means literally a change of mind, a change of thinking, a change of evaluation, a change of standards, a, a turnaround. A preacher made a mistake when he said that repentance was like a, a 360 degree turn. You go, you go 360 degree turn, you're going on the same way, aren't you? He meant a 180 degree turn. That you're going in an opposite direction. That you've got a new view of God. That a new view of yourself. A new view of man. A new view of the cross of Christ. A new view of following the Lord Jesus. That is repentance. And like gentleness, it's not an option. The Savior climbed the hill of ascension and he lifted up his hands in blessing and he told the people that uh, repentance and the forgiveness of sins must be preached in his name to all nations. And so it's gone down. Uh, Ten centuries, 15, 18, 19, 20 centuries, it's gone down to today. And I'm a man under obligation to do what Jesus told the disciples to do on the hill of ascension. And I'm to say, you need to repent. Every one of you here. You need to have a spirit of repentance. One great definitive act at the beginning. To say, I've lived in unbelief. I've lived without you. I grieve over this. And then constantly, every day. You don't need another bath of repentance, but you need a little wash. A little sprinkle every day of repentance. At the end of the day, you say, sorry, Lord, about the things I did today. And you do that all through your life. The Christian life is a repenting life. And repentance is genuine when one of the fruit is a new gentleness that we have. What is significant in our text, of course, is one of the great texts that teach this lesson, that repentance, gospel repentance, is a gift from God. Here it is. It says it very clearly, doesn't it, in our verse, that, that God would grant them Repentance, that's the verse in front of you. Is it the only place? There was just one place where Christendom is described as a great house. Uh, it's very difficult to build a doctrine on one verse. But it's not just in this verse that repentance is called a gift of God. You have it in uh, Acts 5. Paul, Peter preaching to the people and saying, God exalted him at the right hand of God as leader and saviour, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. It's through the man, Jesus Christ. Repentance is a gift from God. Or you have uh, Peter preaching to the Gentiles in the household of uh, Cornelius, and everyone is affected. The Spirit comes upon them. All the congregation is broken. 
filled with the Holy Spirit. And the news then reaches Jerusalem that uh, Roman centurions and Gentiles, that they've come to believe in Christ. What does the church in, uh, in Jerusalem say when it listens to and sees that phenomena? Does it say, good on them? Does it say, well, they made a wise choice. We are glad we made our choice, and we are glad they made their choice. It doesn't say anything like that. It says, ah, so God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Acts 11, 18, God has given them repentance, he says. They were totally God-centered in their reasoning and in their thinking. God had done that. Or when Paul writes to the Romans and he tells them of the goodness of God and how wonderfully good God has been to them. And he says, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. He's been this kind and this good to us that he's given us this complete change of direction and values. He's given us the peace we long sought. He's given us strength and a moral structure. And hope and forgiveness of our sins. God did it. How kind, how good God was. That his goodness led to repentance. Or again when Jesus says how, how do men turn to God. He says uh, that no man can come to me except the Father. Who sent me draws them. God draws. God gives repentance. It's a gift of God. It's the fruit of a new heart. You know, um, there's a gold coin that comes from heaven. And on the one side of the gold coin, there is saving faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, this is the gift of God. And then the other side of the coin, there is gospel repentance. And you can't go to a bank and you can say to the bank, I want some pound coins, but I only want pound coins with the queen on one side. I don't want the other side. He says, I'm sorry. You've got to have both sides on every pound coin. You've got to have the shield on one side and you've got to have the queen's head on the other. And it's like that when we come to God. There's uh, repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are there. They're like love and marriage. You can't have the one. No, you can't have the one. No, you can't have the one without the other. It's there. I have read that in Romania, there are some evangelicals, and they're called repenters. And they've derived that title because of their strong emphasis on on preaching repentance, requiring repentance. And it's impacted the church there, so that in these churches which are stressed the need for people to repent, um, there's spiritual growth I guess there would be some legalism uh, often mixed with it, like all our strengths are mixed with certain weaknesses that, that, that go along with those strengths. But R- Romanian Christians are known because they require Christians to be repenting Christians. If there are 200 evangelical Christians in a congregation on a Sunday morning, there will be 200 evangelical Christians in the congregation Sunday night too. And there will be 200 
in the prayer meeting, in the midweek meeting. They will be there. These repenters will be there. They are so committed to the loss that they will stand in the aisles so that visitors will come in and they can sit and they can listen. And sometimes they will stand outside the church because the church is so full that they want visitors to come and hear the gospel and repent of their sins. God blesses this message of repentance. Oh, I I hope it's going to be preached in Wales today and tonight in every gospel congregation. I, I hope the notes of repentance, the requirements of divine repentance are going to be sounded out and the fruit of gospel repentance will be seen in, in, in people's lives. And then lastly, I want to show you the great end of uh, gently pleading for repentance. And it's twofold. Verse 26 They'll come to their senses and they'll escape from the trap of the devil. Those are the fruit of gently preaching repentance. That you'll come to your senses. Weren't you moved by hearing John's gospel read this morning? And those Jewish leaders and their determination to crucify the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount. To crucify one who went about doing good. Who healed all the sick. Thousands of them. People they knew. Their relatives. That he raised the dead. That the winds and waves obeyed him. And demons obeyed him. And trees obeyed him. And they bribed people to lie about him. So that they could crucify him. They had no reason to do it. They seem to have lost their senses, don't they? And don't you find that when when you look around Britain today and you find what men do, what men do to other men, what they do to women, what they do to children, what they do to animals, what madness. Think of the most blameless members of society, the unborn child. They're killed by the thousand. What madness. Think two, two men live together and, and have sexual activity with one another. And it's called a marriage. What madness. The BBC employs men as the stars of young people's programs. And these men seduce and rape scores of girls, some as young as eight or nine years of age. And the British Broadcasting Corporation does nothing about it for years until the chief criminal dies. The BBC, your money pays for them. And they have encouraged a culture of permissiveness. And they reflect that in their lives as leaders and in the programs that they present. Madness. 
the madness of sin. It's when you see Jesus that sanity returns to you. You become sensible. You see things for what they are. And you hate sin and tawdriness and meanness and cruelty and abuse and macho-ness. It's, it's not attractive to you. You, you. you don't admire it. You pour contempt on it all. Repentance delivers us from the madness of sin. And then the other thing it does is uh, we escape from the entrapment of the devil. Isn't it amazing? Here you are in 2016 February and you come to church and you hear a man and he says to you that uh, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ you're, you're trapped by the God of this world that you are of your father the devil. And that he seems an intelligent man and he's got some eloquence and he actually believes this. In 2016. And he tells you that that's what's wrong with you. That the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience is working in, in your hearts. And the, the fruit of it is that you, you love self and pride and vanity. And unbelief. But the devil's got you. And you need then not only to be delivered from the madness of sin, but the devilishness of sin too. Repentance. Gospel repentance. Trust in Jesus Christ. It will do it. Don't you want it? You say, oh, repentance is your gift. Give it to me. And keep praying it until he's given it to you. Cry to him mightily that he will hear you. Let's pray together. Lord, do bless your word to us now and, oh, make us gentle. How the preacher who's preached to others about their need to be gentle needs to be gentle himself. Oh, God, help us in the midst of opposition. We've spoken of one man who's had a lot of a lot of hatred shown to him publicly, like we've never heard any other man being dealt with in this way recently. And, oh, we pray for him and his wife and his children and his church. And we ask that you will bless him as he begins this new series and all the temptations and challenges of a morning television program sitting on that sofa and speaking to people. Do help him, Lord. Oh, be with him and be with us then as we are facing then occasions when our tongues can run away with us and we lose our gentleness. Please forgive us that there's been too much of that in the past and help us, we pray, every one of us, the oldest saint, the youngest Christian, and give gospel repentance here to those who has yet know thee not as their Lord and Savior. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.